I think that embarrassment and that shame and that all of those things are going like, how did we not see this? How, how did this happen? What does this say about me? All of those things. And, and obviously I'd invested 10 years in this thing and now it's looking like it's hitting a wall. What would you do if you discovered one of your biggest clients accounting for 40% of your revenue was using a project of yours to illegally funnel money to people? This is precisely what happened to John T. Fisher and his advertising agency. What unfolded was a brutal period of cutbacks and rebuilding as John T. and his partners worked to save their business and rebuild. As a classically trained business marketing strategist, John T. has led strategic thinking and guided executional work across brands such as Heineken, PepsiCo, Jack Daniels, Adidas Originals, Kia Motors, Hennessy, and many, many more world-class brands. He is driven by a passion for human beings and all their gifts and quirks, and a deep curiosity for learning lessons out of everything he does. In this week's episode, he shares his incredible story as we discuss how imposter syndrome affected his leadership, how he learned to bring his whole self to work with him, and exactly what happens to your business when a client commits an illegal act unbeknownst to you in the middle. My name is Nick Haralambis, and I don't want to keep you waiting any longer. So remember, it's not over until it's over. Okay, welcome back to It's Not Over. I am sitting with an old friend of mine, John T. Uh, John T. Fisher. Hey, I mean, we can't use lack of hair as an age gauge because we both have lack of hair. If you're listening to this and not watching, John T. and I are rocking the same hairstyle. Um, John T., thank you and welcome. How are you? Very good, Nick. Great to be here. Lovely to chat to you. Awesome. Ditto. I'm excited about this story. So let's dive in and why don't you tell me about the business that we're going to be talking about and set the scene and let's go from there. Cool. Yeah, so it probably, probably uh, it goes back to university. I, I started an agency with a business partner at the time, a guy called Dean McCubrey, uh, when I was still finishing up my business science degree. And, and then when we finished that, uh, we started a little agency called Traffic, which was, we started out of, out of his apartment in Kenilworth and then moved across to the heady heights of gardens. We were in what we called the dungeon, which was underneath Lobel Culvert Pace, which was one of the, the big agencies at the time. And uh, we were right at the bottom of that building and we, we, were, we had this kind of uh, this window which we could open because we couldn't afford any aircon and we had a, a printer next door and they would dump their ink out, out the window there into this little channel between our two places. So it wasn't exactly the glory days of, of, of advertising for us, but yeah, we started out there and grew that business for... For quite a while, actually, that business we we grew for about a decade. Had yeah, those early days had lots of lots of wins, lots of good times. Uh, had a lot of fun. Shit, had some meetings that I'll never forget for the rest of my life, just how bad they were. But really, kind of paid our dues, I suppose. I think one of the joys of of being young is that people just generally don't say no to you. So we we really just built our business by saying yes to everything that that we could possibly do for a client, and then phoning up the biggest person we could, whether it were independent newspapers at the time, and just phone up the sales director and say, hey, we're a couple of young guys and we're, we're launching an agency and we need to learn about all the stuff. And everybody would end up giving you time. And we kind of built our business like that, just really, I suppose, as a couple of charlatans in a very established game and just trying to learn our way in the trenches. And we, we grew that up till about 35 people in the first decade. And then we rebuilt that with the help of a guy called Mark Sherrington. He was a bit of a mentor at the time. And we launched a new agency then called Bletchley Park and brought in a new partner there as well. Had a lot of fun in that agency. And then 
Sure. About five years ago now, we, we merged that with Old Friends Young Talent, and I exited that business about two years ago, and I'm now at uh, Publicis Group. But yeah, we got, we'll talk about probably some of those early days of traffic, I'm sure, and Bletchley Park, I, th- I think, was when we had some of our best moments, but also hit a big wall. Uh, and that was a big kind of liberating moment for me and my own development, I think, and, and, and my own leadership. And I think I was a very different person before and after that, so hence why I thought it'd be a good one to talk about. Amazing. Okay, so a couple of questions just right off the bat in the early days of traffic. First off, why? Why did you start an ad, ad yeah. agency? Of all the things in all the world, why an ad agency? Yeah, so I mean, look, I, I was always interested in communications. I actually wanted to be a, a journalist, actually, of, of all things. Effectively, like coming of age was very much around the Gulf War. And I think that was the first 24-hour news stream war. And, 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 and I was absolutely glued to that thing. And, and Christian Amanpour at the time was like an absolute hero or heroine for me at the time. And, that, and that's what I wanted to be was Christiana. So I, I, I then went and did a three-day work shadow at the Cape Times and very quickly told me this is the last place in the world I ever want to be. Following the, the court reporters for a couple of days, I was like, nah, this is not me. So I went and did one of those aptitude things and it was like communications, so journalism first and, and, and then uh, marketing. So I went into business science and, and absolutely fell in love with the marketing game. And I think in my... Final year there, my honours year, I think I really started to figure out that we were really being groomed to go and work for one of the big guys. You're going to work, you're groomed to go and work at a Unilever or on PNG or something like that. And that just, it just never grabbed me, to be honest. And yeah, I'd, 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 Rob and I have shared the story as well, but I was in a business, we had a business, what is it called, business strategy course. And Mark Shuttleworth spoke at that and and. The one thing he said that really stuck with me at the time was because I was trying to figure out what was next. And and he said, look, you've got this kind of window. This was 1999. And he said, you've got this kind of window of like five years where if you want to start something, everything's everything's for you. South Africa had gone through that kind of initial early like five years of of the post-apartheid existence. And we were all the, the government policies were behind entrepreneurs. And I think that was like one of the last pushes that I need to kind of go yeah, maybe I should just go on my own. And I'd met my, my what became my business partner, a guy called Dean McCubrey. He was British, came out from the UK and just fell in love with Cape Town and a, a girl who was a friend of mine as well. And, and so we kind of headed off and we started working together, as I said, in that final year and then decided to make a full go of it. But I, I think it was just born out of the fact that I never felt cut out for the for the corporate life then and that was kind of I, I never I never felt it was like a really big decision that it was like I kind of weighed up all the odds and kind of felt like I just fell into it which maybe just I suppose signals that it was a natural move for me but it, it never felt like some people will look back and go oh that was a brave choice or something like that it's it just felt like a obvious choice to me at the time to be honest. That makes sense and at the time did you figure yourself as the creative part of this agency or the operation? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely the business guy and the strategy guy. Uh, uh, Dean was was much more of a creative uh, type of personality. And, and we kind of, you have roles in a partnership and we definitely fell into those roles. So I was like the the a bit more of the kind of structure guy and the certainly the strategy guy in terms of dealing with clients and dean was 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 very much the creative engine and yeah you know, i think in many ways in a you know if i had to look at those early years i think i i almost played the role of the almost sometimes the handbrake you know dean was the guy who pushed me and i was the one who kind of was okay cool but then how are we going to actually do this practically so there was a lot of that so i mean i certainly 
got a lot out of Dean in terms of him pushing me into things that I might not have done, taking risks that I might not have done, all those types of things, especially when I was very young. And I probably gave him the structure that he needed to, to build out a business as well. So, yeah. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way. Please, right now, stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or YouTube. Then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. It's interesting the way that you describe the traffic decade was quite quick. Mm. And I suppose looking back on it, it feels quite quick. So tell me what it was like building an agency. uh, Apartheid's just ended and everything is different. And you're building this incredibly creative business with someone you kind of like. And you got up to 35 people, profitable, sustainable. What was that like? The first thing I'd say was a lot of fun. Like I, I, I think... The, the joy of, of dealing with any any business where you're just using people's brains effectively is that technically, and this is very technically, every transaction should be a profit transaction, right? So you, you're not having big investment costs in those. So we were completely skint. We were living off the bones of our asses, and, but we were having a hell of a lot of fun, paying ourselves really anything. You know, everything was going into salaries and client lunches and all the things that we thought we had to do but all, I mean the, my, my, my two overwhelming memories of that thing were just that it was a hell of a lot of fun and then when I if I look back in it I think in my own leadership there was probably a lot of probably a lot of imposter syndrome in, in that time as well I was I'd come straight out of university never gone to work in a big agency so I always thought they must be doing it so much better than we do and all of those types of things and, and I think for myself as well Dean Dean was always very, very very good very good creator very good uh, communicator he was the guy who was out there on the forefront and and i almost assumed the role of being more of like the rock of the business the guy who would like control the money and the, and i think i was really playing a role for a lot of that time like how mr how should an md be dressed how should an md act all those types of things and i certainly don't feel when i look back on it I think one of the big lessons in, in one of the first walls we hit was around actually myself and how do I bring my whole self to work and what, what's the value in that versus and really kind of shedding this these clothes of what I expected people needed me to be as opposed to what I, what I really could bring to a leadership role. So, yeah, but I mean, back to your question, I think it was just a, a lot of fun. I mean, it was we were learning so much, which is a massive thing for me. If, I, if I'm not learning, I'm dead and I get really bored quickly if I'm not learning. And, and I think I was immensely driven by that. So it was this kind of really validating thing we grew well we kind of we didn't have too many we obviously were skint the whole time but we did we didn't have too many like life-threatening moments up in that and that's very lucky because in a game like advertising you you're never generally more than like two phone phone calls away from death so we were we were lucky in that time we were lucky to get a couple of bedrock clients early and and that really helped us as i said there was like a little bit of a dark side of it in terms of the imposter side of it which i had to kind of grow out of but yeah, it was an immensely rewarding time. It was just uh, 
just super fun. I'm going to pick up on the imposter syndrome later on in the show, but I want to dive now into this near-death business experience, um, kind of tee it up for us. Yeah. What is going on in the business at this time and what's the conflict? Yeah, everything had grown really steadily and we were up to 30, 35 people at that stage. We had these beautiful offices in, in Greenpoint. We were just relaunching from, from this other business into this new business. And we had all this kind of massive excitement for the future. And we had, we had landed this uh, kind of, in our minds, whale of a client, which I'm not gonna mention for, for reasons that'll become obvious, but it was in the financial services industry and we, we had won the business, taken it over from, from another partner. And we had taken over effectively like, a, this is, so this is like a decade and this is like 2010, 2011. And we'd taken over uh, a research process and a partner that that the previous partner had worked with. So we had to kind of take on this relationship and, and manage this work. And what ended up we find when we kind of hit this wall was in 2011, the industry regulator came knocking on our door saying, well, the, this work that you guys have been doing, this research work is actually a way to funnel money that this client was funneling money to a whole lot of people that was against industry regulations. And so we were stuck in the middle of this thing, you know, unbeknownst to us. And it was almost like an age of innocence is just broken. And I and my partner and, and the way we run the business was was very, very high in integrity. So you, you are now in the situation where, you know, you, you, number one, your integrity has been brought into question. And that was obviously a, personally a massive thing. But most importantly, this this whale was 40% of our revenue. So not so much th this research thing was a small piece of the pie. We were doing all, all the communication work. And um, it was a it wasn't a hard decision to to part ways with them, obviously, but the repercussions of it were massive. And it was a, just a really brutal time when you've you've had this almost like kind of coddled growth experience up into like some you know decent success as a as a as a bunch of young guys and you're suddenly confronted with this big punch in the face so i suppose that's the that's the tee up of of what happened that is so many questions just on the tee up the the main one that i'm curious about is were they intentionally funneling this money was it actually an illegal act yeah, absolutely. So, so they, they in wow. their minds, so in their minds, they were getting around regulations, right? Which is not the way the industry regulators saw it. But in their minds, they thought this was entirely defendable because they had put like a whole lot of you know lines in place, and they were legitimately doing some research and blah blah blah. But yeah, I mean that's obviously not the the way that the regulator saw it. So I I, I suspect that there was some nefarious players around some of the people that we were dealing with that were maybe they were a bit pornish in it as well but who knows but certainly it, we felt it was a massive betrayal and and that everybody knew about it but it, with with a bit of hindsight i think a lot of it was 100 percent intentional but i think some people believed uh, maybe drank the kool-aid and thought that this was absolutely fine you know Okay, and to be clear, your response as the leader of the business was to basically fire the client, and then what? Yeah, so so yeah, I mean that was that was the issue. I mean we were left with just probably you know twenty percent of our of our costs were then were then left on retainer. So we were in a really a really precarious decision, but. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think we had to obviously act really fast. So the, the, and in our business, that's people, right? We don't really have any kind of widgets to sell besides, besides people. So 
we had to lose a bunch of people really fast and we did that in the most kind of respectful i suppose humane way that we could but ultimately that was probably the hardest thing because we'd built this kind of family dynamic which you kind of tend to do when you've built with a bunch of people built something and they've been there for a long time and and then you've got to kind of break that family up and that was a that was a big kind of emotional learning for me around leadership and and around it's, it's kind of i think so much of entrepreneurship or so much of business really when a crisis hits is around that kind of classic trolley problem like are you gonna let five people die or are you gonna kill the one person to to save five people and it's I think a lot of the times it was kind of getting my head around that. But the the first job really was to obviously right size. And the next job was ultimately to get the remaining people to to hold their belief. And I think I often say that hope is the currency of entrepreneurship. You know, that optimism and that that hope that you've got to give to people and, and, and yourself many a lot of the time is is really the currency of how you can turn that hope into success. So I think there was a lot of we had a lot of like really open, vulnerable conversations. Transparency was everything in that time. And I, I was somebody who was used to kind of being the person uh, together with my partner, obviously of kind of having everything under control. Uh, and I really took that as a, as a personal failure almost, which I think now is not a smart way to look at it. But at the time, that's how I felt. I kind of really beat myself up about it and, and, and really wanted to try and find a way through this that I could kind of hold it within myself and my partner and not let anybody else know and all those types of things. But I mean, ultimately, we, we, we understood that really kind of being vulnerable around that was the only way to do it and to really share that and to, to actually bring everybody into our confidence, I think, which had a whole lot of benefits. And, and one of the things that we had that really helped us, I mean, there were a few things that helped us, but one of them was that we, had a, we actually had a life coach in our business. So we actually employed a life coach, which we used as like a corporate coach in our business, full-time, half, half days, but full-time. And that was, geez, you talk about when, when some of those decisions, that kind of can sound weird at the time, but when they really, really, really help you in those kind of moments. And that, that was immensely helpful because yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, I as I said, I, I, I was somebody that prided themselves of feeling like I had everything under control and I was just completely out of control at that time. You know, I, I was battling with my own kind of embarrassment about the situation and embarrassed about my integrity being brought into question, embarrassed that we hadn't seen this and embarrassed that we were going to have to have conversations about, about letting people go. And I had a lot of good people around me at that time who could, uh, the coach being one of them, but friends and those that really kind of helped me through the integrity question. I think that was a that was a big thing. And but were you completely honest with the people around you? I mean, oftentimes, especially when it comes to legal um, ramifications, yeah. you shut down, you lock down, you kind of don't don't tell anybody in case. My default is to be open, vulnerable, and transparent because I've learned the hard, shitty lesson that yeah. the more you hold on to yourself, the harder it is to deal with. So did you, I, I wanna be very specific here. Yeah. You got an email from a lawyer who was like, you guys are in breach and you're going to jail and then you did what? Yeah, completely. And, and, and Like what was the first thing? Exactly. I mean, <laughs> I, it's, a, it's a great question because I think you'll know what probably the answer is. My, my initial response <laughs> at that time was just put my head in the sand and run as far as I can. Like it was just so, it was so, it was so outside of the realms of possibility and so attacking to kind of core values that mm. it, it was it was a it was a brutal thing. I mean, I remember the 
the, it, it, just the almost the courage that I needed to speak to my wife about it, just because it was. I like, was just going to ask you. You know. Yeah. And and and, and I think Kara was the first person, I, besides obviously my partner, that 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 I did speak about it. But it it it's it took a huge amount, and it and it was mm. it was a really really hard, brutal conversation because of how it made me feel. I, th- I think that embarrassment and that shame and that all of those things are going like. How did we not see this? How, how did this happen? What does this say about me? All of those things. And, and obviously I'd invested 10 years in this thing and now it's looking like it's hitting a wall. Just on that feeling of embarrassment, if you look back at it now, John T, the leader now, if you had to be in that position, would you really feel embarrassed now? No. No, like it was that it was a youthful response, yeah. right? Yeah, I know now a lot about things that are in my control and things that aren't, and I'm really clear on focusing on things that are in my control and 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 being responsible, but pushing away things that are outside of my control. And and I think this was a it was a classic example. If I had to look back on that now and say, what was in my control in that situation? If I'd if I'd been super sharp and really asked a gazillion questions all the way down the line I could have figured it out but where I was at the time what what the kind of relationship we had with that client and 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 all the the kind of massive scope of the work that we were doing I wouldn't be embarrassed I'd be I'd just be pissed off angry yeah angry okay so then you get the email you talk to your wife you talk to your business partners you guys decide that the best route forward is to get rid of the client and then I want to ask you about the first conversation you have with your team we did take a while to talk to the team because we we felt that we needed to have answers again now I think I would be immediately more open but at the time I really felt like we needed to we need to have a plan otherwise we were just going to lose everyone and so also at the same time so we, we made the decision to 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 part ways but we had a legal we knew that we were we we didn't end up actually going into a legal process but we 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 suspected that we would need to so we needed to get a whole lot of stuff down so we had we together with our lawyers we kind of we played for i don't know it's probably about three weeks or so we played with the client getting a whole lot of stuff down in writing just so that we had a we had a legal trail behind us on that but so we, we had a couple of weeks really where we could kind of figure out what was next and how we would how we would act and then in that three weeks i went to i was in crisis mode personally and was in kind of shutdown mode on everything you know so everybody could see that there was some shit going on i mean there was no doubt about that but i think that's where i went deep in with this with this coach and together with my partner and my new partner at the time which was also quite a difficult conversation and and really just kind of dove headlong into it and and we did a lot of work around kind of what's that kind of there's a framework around kind of a victim framework you know when you don't have information you're not empowered and a lot of work around that and realizing where I was in that and how I could empower myself through information and through sharing and get myself out of that kind of dark hole so by the time that couple of weeks had 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 passed and I was I, I kind of felt like at least I could see through it you know I could see I could see on the other side the initial pain of it I suppose had had given rise to a bit of a call let's take stock let's look at what our cash flow is like let's let's see what kind of arsenal we've got to play with and and what calls we need to make quickly after that and so we did have a we didn't have a clear plan but we had enough of a plan and I think I was kind of wrestling with this whole thing around family as well and keeping this group together, which is, again, a very naive leadership view, but it was where we were at the time after having built that. And I kind of had had got to a phase, again, working with this coach where I could see that to save the business, I needed to kind of break this 
family scenario. And so I was quite, I, w- I certainly wasn't ready for that conversation. If I'm dead honest, I don't remember a lot about it because I was probably still in a massive amount of kind of turmoil and shock and all of those things. And yeah, but we, we just had to pull the plaster and, and, and share where we were. What I remember more is actually what happened after that, which I think was actually the year and two after that, there was a, I, it, it pushed me into a massive leadership journey after that. And it was actually a massively liberating event in my, in my business life, as, as hard as it was at the time. But in the immediate aftermath of that, what I do remember is what you forget, right, is you've got all these amazing people around you, like really smart people, people that are really committed to this business. And just being able to share it, you just, you kind of engaged all of these people. So like, yeah, of course, there were some people who reacted badly to it and went running to the door, very few, but some did, and that's fine. But the majority of people were like, cool, how do we help? How, let's help, help us think through this and, and help us, like, this is what we'll drive, this is what we can pick up, let's think about this, maybe we could do this. And you kind of forget in that moment when you are thinking it's all on you, that you've actually, by sharing, you, you disengage all of these amazing people. And it turned into such a flywheel of kind of that vulnerability turned into all of these people working for us, their own commitment and investment doubled down into this business. And that led to more growth and, and certainly a, almost like a reset of how we all work together. And so it was immensely powerful moment both for the business and and for me but also just i think in that realization of when you really do pull a bunch of people together not around a not around a a client or a business problem but actually around the business yeah it it was that was immensely powerful as well so yeah i think there was it was a I, i certainly remember it being a really tough conversation but i don't remember much about the actual conversation to be honest i mean i feel stressed listening to you talk about this if i'm honest i i'm gonna push you on something that yeah. I've been battling with for a while with a couple of my coaching clients that I help in their businesses. Do you still believe in building a family dynamic in a business? So, yeah, I, I mean, it's a, it's a great question because it's, it's, I think it comes to the heart of it. So for me, I think, what is a family, right? It's about really strong relationships and it's about relationships where hopefully you can you succeed and fail together. You feel empowered to be able to fail, but still keep your role in that unit. It's supportive. It's it's hopefully the space that's a safe space for you. It's hopefully the space where you can have conversations that you wouldn't have necessarily with uh, somebody that you didn't feel that close to, all those types of things. And the way I think about it is, it's about taking that element from the family, but not the fact that it's unbreakable. It's that part that's unhealthy in, in a family view on a, on a business where, where mm-hmm. you've got to keep that team together at all costs. And, and if you've got a, a toxic auntie or uncle, you can't get rid of them. If you're in a business, yes, you can, because th- that, you don't have to sit around the dinner table with that person because they're going to piss everybody else off. You can get rid of them. So I, I think yeah. what I take of it is what the the social construct and the power of the social construct of a family relationship and what that gives to the unit is the power in the family metaphor. 
but it's not the unbreakable, you can choose your friends and not your family. It's not that. You can certainly choose mm. who's in your business and who's not. And you can get rid of people when they're not right or they don't yeah. uphold those values, which is different. You had been building this business off the back of a family dynamic. Did anybody throw that back in your face at the time? No, uh, because this I, think, was all unfolding? I, think, I think sometimes it's in your own heads. Like, because uh, there were lots of people, right? There were lots of employees that came and went in our business that were like, cool, yeah, hey, I'm here, but I'm just kind of collecting my paycheck and after two years I'm like yeah cool I'm gonna go somewhere else they're not thinking about it like a family dynamic so the people that were bought in yeah they loved the culture loved the loved the environment loved loved a lot of that things but I, I, I think it was a lot on me to be honest rather than mm. it was my view of what I what I wanted to do in corralling these people together and it was my own shit to work through rather than our employees I think I mean I, nobody ever threw that back, put it that way. And because of the nature of this conflict and this issue, did you worry about or receive any backlash from the industry, from the market? Did you suffer any reputational damage? The short answer is no. It, there was one article which was you know, absolutely mortifying to me that it was that, that it was anything was in the press where the agency name was mentioned, but that was it. And I think, I don't know, there's an old Seneca quote, we suffer more in, in imagination than, re than reality. I, I think that was absolutely where I was and I was I was mortified that that's exactly what would happen and a friend of mine who's a lawyer a friend of mine called Mariam Haroon she, I was talking to her about trying to get some advice from her at the time and she said to me I, I said to her look the, the biggest thing for this is my integrity and how important that is to me and and how this kind of pulls away from that and 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 my personal reputation and she said, look, everybody that knows you knows your integrity. Everybody that loves you, that's really close to you knows that. And this is not going to change that because they know who you are. And I think that was that was an immensely, just the fact that I remember that conversation today means that it was an immensely powerful thing for me in moving through that. But no, I mean, we had never ended up going like into court or anything like that. that actually, the regulator never ended up pursuing it into, into its final form. So... Yeah, I think we kind of got away, got away with it. But I mean, it was certainly at the time, it felt like the most mortifying thing in the world. Of course, I can't even imagine like, as you're about to scale and grow. Yeah. So let's talk about that scale and growth, right? What what did the business suffer as a result of this? Yeah. Uh, how in percentages, staff, revenue, where yeah. did you end up? It was about 40% of our revenue. So it was a it was a huge amount there. I mean, what the decision we had made, I mean, we had built up a pretty good cash flow position. We were both, my partner and I, were, were always quite conservative around, uh, you know, what could be around the corner. And we'd built up a, quite a healthy cash flow position. So we could kind of weather ourselves for, for a little while on that. So the, one of the, the decisions we did take was to limit, uh, try and save as many people as we could and then really back ourselves to grow thereafter. And so we, we dropped probably probably about 25% of our team that we, we dropped thereafter. And then just kind of lived off, weaned off that cash flow position and, and backed ourselves to grow thereafter. And I think one of the one of the advantages of that was that it really did pull everybody together. I mean, we we used it as an opportunity to to really reset everything about ourselves, you know, reset what our vision was and we did that together as a, as a team reset how we were going to get there and what our roles were and how we were going to work together and what our values were and all of those things we kind of used it as this galvanizing force to take this bunch of people walk them through the fire but let them feel the ownership of that on the journey with us and that 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 paid a lot of dividends actually and and we we 
we recovered way quickly than I expected that we would. By the end of that year, we were we we, we we certainly went back to where we were, but we had recovered into into a profitable space. We were able to pay bonuses, not massive bonuses, but we were able to pay bonuses at the end of that year. And then the next year, we had a really good year. The year after that, even better. So and we, we won some awards that year and we, we were able to to get the narrative back and to to feel like we were we were over it. So, but I, but I actually think that the action of how we managed the process itself allowed us to galvanize that team towards growth, which was which was awesome. I mean, it's it's having standing on the edge of an abyss is 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 an immensely liberating thing, right? You've got nothing else that you can fail. So you just go, well, cool. Where do we go? With nothing's off the table, you end up with this real sense that anything is possible and as long as we stick together we'll get it done and, and if you've got that that hope as i said earlier and that optimism that's kind of what can drive you forward yeah i mean there's nothing like a crisis to galvanize a team yeah. and this actually is a great example of one of my favorite um, recent psychological discoveries called post-traumatic growth i'm not yeah. sure if you've come across it no but that um, immediately instinctively the, i'm like yeah that's i can see that 100 percent it is exactly what it says on the tin, yeah. um, but there's masses of studies done that people who experience trauma of any kind, up to 85% of people in these studies report being a better version of themselves after that trauma. Wow. Trauma from abuse to an accident to loss of a business, loss of every trauma. There is actual research that shows that you are a better version of yourself after the trauma. And this is a great example of a company version of that, yeah. that you can't live life avoiding failure. You can't right. live life avoiding trauma. If you do, you don't become resilient. You don't build up any kind of resistance to failure. Absolutely. Like I, the, the quote that I keep telling people is I've never met a successful person who's avoided failure towards their success. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. You cannot avoid failure. And this is a great example of girl organizing a team and becoming a better version of what you were. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that rings massively true for me. And I, th I think I, I certainly, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I look at that, I look at that time and I think somebody that knew me as a leader in the time before that, when I was probably a lot stiffer, a lot, a lot more kind of playing a role than what that, the, the gift that that gave me was a real sense of like, just be yourself and 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 bring your whole self to work. All of those kind of trivial statements, but that are immensely powerful in 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 your own leadership and your own self leadership. So yeah, it was inc incredibly powerful for me that that moment and that crisis. There's a couple of things I want to jump back to. You mentioned your life coach was quite pivotal at this point. In the beginning, why did you have a life coach on staff? I'd, I personally had just started a bit of a, an exploration, I suppose, of classic human experience, right? You kind of hit 30 and you start going, hmm, you know, where, where am I going in life and all that? And you start asking a few questions of yourself. And, and I can't remember how we initially, where we found this person, but how we started engaging with her. I think, actually, I think my business partner, Dean, was seeing her and then... And then her name was Shirley, and and then we 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 yeah it must have been somewhere around there that we just thought hey we've got a whole lot of stuff we've got a whole lot of interpersonal things and we we're actually interested in this of like growing ourselves and all those things so let's bring her in and we brought her in and she did some initially did some intervention stuff around psychometric testing and get.
getting us looking at each other as a team. And we really enjoyed that process. And then it kind of just grew from there into like we were being more and more reliant on her. And there was uh, there were some particular moments of like interpersonal crises between people that we then brought her in to help. And I think the more that we looked at it, we were like, just shit, it, it, there's such, so much value in this. And there's so much value in having somebody that somebody's having a problem, like a personal problem at home, like that's affecting work, let's give them an outlet. Like if, if people are having problems at work interpersonally, cool, let's give them an outlet. And it and it, it started working really well for us pre this and obviously then it really paid it for itself in spades during. Hey folks, Nick here, and I'm interrupting this fascinating conversation. And I know that that can be irritating, but I wanted to ask you to do me a small favor that will help me in a huge way please right now stop and go and subscribe to It's Not Over wherever you are listening, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google or YouTube, then leave a rating and review and turn on notifications. Every subscriber and every rating helps me keep this podcast trucking along. Now, back to the knowledge bombs. I'm interested in your mental health at the time because back then mental health wasn't really a yeah. thing, like a focus and especially for men and especially for South African men in yeah. entrepreneurship. So what did this experience do in that moment yeah, to yeah. your personal life, your mental health, your relationships? Like how did that all work? At that time, I was somebody who wanted to to be seen as having everything under control. I was per part of the persona of you know being the youngest person in my own company for the first couple of years and thinking I need to play this like caricature almost of of an MD and and I, and I think it's just this issue just exploded that right so I mean I immediately just went into like this deep dark hole of like I just don't know I can't even comprehend how to get ourselves out of this it, it was it wasn't like yeah I knew exactly what to do and I'm this in, like agile entrepreneur I could not I could, almost just couldn't function. Fact. And I was like that at home. I wasn't a terrible time for my wife at the time because I just wasn't communicating. I was just kind of, you know, <laughs> closed off. And I think part of one of the advantages of this particular life coach is that she doesn't, <laughs> she's got this incredible way of just not letting you, you off the hook. And she'll ask you a question and then she'll just sit back. And then you kind of, you give an answer. That's the trite, the answer at the top of the iceberg above the water. And then she'll just sit there. She won't say anything. She'll just stare at you. And then you start going, <laughs> and then you go, mm -hmm. okay, it's, it's, yeah, I think I'm doing it because of this. And she'll go, mm-hmm. And she'll keep quiet. And then so it, it, it actually, what that was really powerful in doing was, was A, teaching me how to think through something like this when it was emotion wrapped up in a, in a practical business problem and, and kind of unlocking those layers. And then I think a lot of it was, was giving me permission to think. Uh, and I know that sounds strange, but w w when you're in a dark hole, you, you tend to, and, and you're in a bit of that kind of embarrassed shame bubble around this thing, you tend to just be beating up on yourself and you do in a cycle of beating up on yourself. And I think what that really did was give me a lot of permission to in a quite a safe space, just kind of emerge from that cave and give myself permission to be the victim in this, but then to start mm. getting out of that and to be a bit more empowered. And what do I need to be empowered? What information do I need to make decisions? And, and she just kind of walked me out of that cave. And I think that was probably the gift of that, of that role in, in, in helping me through that.
You've mentioned this a few times, and I, I wanted to pick up on it. This idea that in the beginning of your career, you were you were acting like a leader. Mm. You were doing what you thought a leader should do. Was this the pivotal moment where you were like, actually, I am a leader? And then did it change, or was there other stuff that impacted how you lead today? Yeah, I mean, I think I was probably on the journey, but it certainly kicked the can probably three years down the road. Like, well, not kicked <laughs> the can. That's all wrong. The other opposite way. I know yeah, what you it, mean. Though. It fast forwarded <laughs> me there. Yeah, in my twenties. I thought I was doing what was right. I was showing up like a leader, but it wasn't who I was. I wasn't leading as jaunty. I was leading as this caricature, right? And and I think when I probably got into my late 20s, I definitely knew that that, that, was, that wasn't working. And I was like, I wasn't kind of connecting with people. I was a different person at home than I was at work. I was a different person with my mates than I was at work. And that you, you start calling yourself on that shit when you get into your late 20s. And so I, I was already on a journey of trying to figure it out. But this certainly, as I said, with the, like the liberation of that, I think gave me the opportunity to kind of just shed all of that stuff. Super vulnerable in that moment of going, I don't have all, my, all the stuff figured out. I need your guys' help on this journey. I'm going to be exactly who I am. I want you to be exactly who you are. Let's have absolute freedom of expression. Let's, let's, let's have a completely direct relationship and not nobody talking in how they think they need to be talking to me or I'm talking to them or any of that stuff. So it certainly just fast forwarded all of that stuff by like shedding all of that by a good couple of years. I think I probably would have got there, but it would have taken me a long time to get there. And and, and this just gave that one, just cut, cut everything down and, and start again, which was really liberating and really powerful. Post-traumatic growth. Yeah, like exactly that's right. The yeah. embodiment of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, as, as we close out, I'm interested in what you learned from this particular thing that you carry with you today? I, I mean, there's a couple of things. There's probably four or five things. I think the, the, the first one was is really that it's only work, right? I think I had so much wrapped up in this thing and without really realizing that work can kill you as well. Like as much as we love it, it can kill you and, and, and taking care of yourself in that moment and, and really, I suppose, learning how to take care of yourself. I think that's probably one of the key things was, was really understanding that your own cognitive ability and emotional ability to work yourself through this type of stress is one of the things that you should be spending the most time learning. What works for you? What are your tools? What's important to you? How do you, how do you create the time for that and, and to manage that? So I'm, I'm way more attentive now into how I manage and, and compartmentalize stress and what my tools are and how I use them and all those things. And, and I think often, sometimes, and this is a hard thing for entrepreneurs, right? But I, I think... I needed to almost realize that sometimes business had too that, that business had too much hold on my life. Like mm. I, I, in my whole kind of entrepreneurial career, which is like ended now, right? But it was like 20 years of that. Was I, I think a lot of my mates and a lot of peers would say, "Geez, it's, it must be so rad. You've, you've got you've got destiny control. You've got so much freedom." And that, when you're in it, doesn't necessarily feel like that, right? You actually feel way more trapped in something. Not trapped's the wrong word, but you, you, you're beholden to something, right? Every, every major life decision you make is, 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 is predicated on another question, which is how does this affect my business, right? You can't just go and spend a year somewhere. You can't, there's a lot of things in your life that you've got to be considering around that. And, and that, for some people, that's great. And they're living like that. I'm probably a bit more balanced in my worldview and 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 I, I, I didn't like some of that 
sense of it. And it gave me a freedom on that of just understanding and being attentive to how I manage my own kind of uh, sense of stress and, and how I take care of my mental health and what role work and the rest of my big life is and what role work plays in that. That's kind of one big one. I think the other one, which is an old adage of, of just that like 90% of entrepreneurship is staying alive. Just staying alive long enough for that next break. Like uh, that's, it's always been something that's a big thing for me. And I think so many entrepreneurs just quit early and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It just didn't work for them and that's cool. Your, your number one role is just to make it to the next month. That's kind of, that's it. And if you could do that and you can do that for long enough, you'll learn enough, you'll have enough fun to keep you going, you'll have good enough people around you to be able to, when that next opportunity does knock, you'll be able to nail it. And maybe the first one you don't, but the second one you will. So it's, it's kind of just getting through that. I think we... We're not taught that really. We almost we generally by media and everything else taught the op- opposite. Everything's an overnight success, and 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 success is selling out or something like that. For a lot of people, that isn't necessarily success. Success is just being in a business you love, working with people you love, and that being profitable and that able to sustain you and grow. And that's that can be enough for a lot of people. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we we end up in these kind of stories of. Instagram of like 14 months after they started, they sold for more than the New York Times. Like those types of stories, which I don't know. I don't know if those are really helpful. I, I think that's survival. They're the outliers. They're not the rule. Yeah, that's and it's, rule. it's that survival. The rule is it, profitable, know? slow growth. That's, yeah. that's actually the rule of entrepreneurship. So yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I back that too. Yeah. Yeah, and, th- and then I, I think as we've spoken about quite a bit, I think really in my own leadership, it, it really taught me about just being myself 100 percent and 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 i certainly don't want to use the word authentic but just being who i am and and leading how i want to lead not how i think i should lead just leading how i want to lead and 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 really not taking on board other people's successes and how they got there just doing it my way i think is 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 it was a huge part of this journey for me i think another one was around and maybe what there was a big betrayal in this, right? So I think I felt certainly personally betrayed by the people that we worked with there. And 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 that led to a great reckoning for me because I've always lived my life giving trust to people. And that's a conscious choice. It's not an unconscious choice. Mm-hmm. It's I choose to give people trust. And I, I do that because I, I think that that I believe in the power of people taking accountability for their actions um, and their attitudes. And, and sometimes that can bite you, right? In this case, it did. But I still choose to do that now to this day. So, but, it, but it did force a bit of a reckoning for that for me. You know, if, is that, have I been burnt here and is that naive? And, I, and I, 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 I spent probably a good year, year and a half kind of working through that. And, and, but I, I still choose to trust people. I choose to, to give people that trust until they break it as opposed to the other way around. Because, yeah, I, I, I think there's, a, there's an optimism in, in that which I'm always going to have. Uh, it's part of kind of who I am and I, and I do choose to see the good in people. There's a, I think it's a, a, a room truism about like living life as if everything's uh, rigged in your favor, something like that, which I, I think is a lovely, that's kind of how I want to live my life as well. And, it, and it, for a lot of people that's naive and a lot of people that's, that can see that as being idealistic but it's I, I think it's 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 certainly served me more than it's hurt me in life and, and I hold on to that and then lastly I think it, it certainly made me very conscious of the depth of stress that we carry as entrepreneurs and, and being responsible for people is one thing being responsible for 
families and 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 the the, the sense of that family beyond the business I, I I think was something that I took really hard out of this I was was in my current role now at publicist I've got lots of stress right but it's a different it's a much more it's a it, it's very hard to explain until you've kind of been in an entrepreneurial role like you have Nick and the weight of that and it, it's like a 50 kilogram backpack that you carry on on your back every single day and because I'd never known anything else I I, I think I'd carried that almost unconsciously the whole way through and and that moment really forced me to kind of understand how much weight that was and and moving into this role now I can see it even more clearly now like just the depth the kind of plumb line of that stress is so big and and as entrepreneurs we don't actually acknowledge that enough I think and that's yeah so I think that was a, a, a big thing that I took out of that moment as well was understanding that and 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 making sure that I can break that and making sure that I can contextualize that in a positive way rather than a negative way because I think it forces you to it can force you to make some really bad decisions and I needed to learn that lesson so yeah maybe those are some of the things that I've taken out of it wow so many incredibly useful things Ajanti thank you and before I uh, say goodbye please tell listeners viewers where they can find you follow you and even buy from you if you've got something that you want to punt yeah I've got nothing to sell besides the agencies and the publicist group but yeah I mean I mean welcome to follow me on social platforms generally you've got to be interested in the outdoors to follow me because that's my kind of my balance passion is 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 being in nature and trail running and a lot of that stuff so I'm on Instagram on John T Fisher and that's just a whole lot of generally trail running stuff so if somebody's interested in that otherwise I'm John T Fisher on on Twitter as well but yeah that's that's about it got no no great wares to sell John T uh, I'm so happy to say that for you and your incredible journey it's not over exactly right